Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Today's episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes. Between writing notes, filing insurance claims, and scheduling with clients, it can be hard to stay organized. That's why I recommend Therapy Notes. Their easy-to-use platform lets you manage your practice securely and efficiently. Visit TherapyNotes.com to get two free months of Therapy Notes today. Just use the promo code TherapyChat when you sign up for a free trial at TherapyNotes.com. Thanks also to DoxyMe for sponsoring this episode. DoxyMe is an easy-to-use, HIPAA-compliant telehealth platform that is available in free and paid versions. Get $50 off a paid account by going to doxy.me and putting in the code TherapyChat. A couple weeks ago, my group practice needed to close our office to in-person sessions and make a quick pivot to telehealth due to the coronavirus. I was able to set up free HIPAA-compliant DoxyMe accounts for my staff and interns, This allowed us to quickly and easily transition to telehealth during a stressful situation. I already had my own paid account that I'd been using as needed. DoxyMe has been easy for staff and clients to use so we can focus on the therapy sessions. Get $50 off a paid account by going to doxy.me and putting in the code therapychat. That's D-O-X-Y dot M-E and use the code therapychat for $50 off. Therapy Chat Podcast, episode 233. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today is June 11th, 2020. I want to start off by acknowledging a correction that I need to make and apologizing for my error in last week's episode, number 232. I mistakenly used the wrong words and the wrong acronym to when I was talking about, I said BLPOC, when I was talking about Black and people of color. I feel stupid admitting this, but of course, want to give out the proper information and also acknowledge that I have seen this acronym. I thought it was a uppercase B, lowercase L, and then capital P-O-C, but it was actually B-I-P-O-C, 
which stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. And of course, that makes sense. When I first heard that acronym and I didn't know what it meant, so I asked, or maybe I looked it up and learned that it meant Black, Indigenous, People of Color. But in my white privilege, I, well, I failed to recall what it stood for. And I still had it in my head that it was B-L-P-O-C. And so um, I think the privilege part is that I was so sure of myself that I knew what it was, that it, what it stood for, but I didn't go look it up and check to make sure that I had it right before I talked about it during last week's episode. And I mean, yes, it was just an honest mistake, but it's also an example of the certainty and knowing that is an aspect of white privilege. And it's part of what upholds white supremacy. And this error is significant because I misnamed what the acronym was about. And that's disrespectful to the people who were left out when I was talking about it. And really, it was disrespectful of me to talk about that acronym when I really didn't know what I was talking about well enough that I could get it right. So I want to apologize to everyone who was listening and anyone who may have been hurt or offended by that. And I will keep trying to do better. This week, I'm highlighting an organization that makes therapy accessible to Black women and girls without them having to have the funds to pay for it. Rachel Cargill, who I mentioned as an anti-racist educator in last week's episode, created Loveland Foundation. And her foundation makes it possible for Black women and girls to access eight therapy sessions at no cost while allowing the therapist to get paid their fee. Normally, when individuals are accessing low-cost services, unless it's through a nonprofit agency, it's usually the therapist who is giving up receiving their full fee to provide a lower fee out of, you know, as an act of being charitable towards someone who can't afford to pay the full fee. And that's great. But I love that this foundation provides the therapist to get paid the full fee too, because I think what I like about that is that it's more sustainable than simply therapists volunteering their time. Eventually, people become burned out when they are not getting paid for their work. And as we all know, the work of being a therapist is very challenging. So I really appreciate the empowering way that this is being done through the Loveland Foundation. Their website is thelovelandfoundation.org. I'll put a link to their website in the show notes. And also... I'm doing a fundraiser for them on my Facebook page for Therapy Chat. So if you follow Therapy Chat's Facebook page, you can you can find that there. Okay, so getting into what I wanted to talk about this week. I've been thinking a lot over the past week, in the past few weeks, I've been reflecting a lot about racism and white privilege and my role in upholding white supremacy. And I've made a new commitment to really doing some internal examination and reflecting on ways that I need to change that I had not considered before. In fact, just since between last week and this week, I've realized that I probably would have done things differently in last week's episode if I had understood last week what I'm beginning to understand this week. But here we are, and I'm going to keep 
trying, keep reflecting, keep doing what I can and knowing that I'm going to get it wrong sometimes and trying to be brave. And even if I screw up, just keep it on going. This is too important to wallow in self-loathing, self-pity or whatever when we screw up. So this week, I want to talk about something I know really well and talk about it in the context of something that I'm beginning to understand at a deeper level. What I know really well is about trauma and the window of tolerance and polyvagal theory. And I want to talk about it within the context of the concept of white fragility, as Robin D'Angelo calls it. So you probably heard me mention the book White Fragility last week. Dr. Robin D'Angelo is a sociologist who speaks about changing the internalized racism that white people carry around with us that we've been immersed in from birth if we were born in America or that we have begun swimming in when we came to America. I'm currently reading the book. I've only read the first chapter so far, plus the introduction forward and all that. And it's been eye-opening and I'm so grateful that I'm reading it because like I said, I feel like a different person than I was last week. So first I'm going to talk about the window of tolerance, which is an important thing to understand if you are interested in trauma, whether you're a therapist working with people who have trauma or whether you're someone who's experienced trauma and want to understand what's happening within yourself. I don't think I've ever really talked about the window of tolerance explaining what it is on this podcast. I think we've kind of mentioned it in passing, but I don't think we've really gone into what it is. And so I'll give you a little window of tolerance 101 here. Dan Siegel, the renowned neuroscientist, is the one who created and identified the concept of the window of tolerance. And I always think about it as I like to explain it using kind of the idea of like a window of opportunity, because when you think of a window of opportunity, you get that idea that it's a space. And in that space, is when you have the opportunity and outside of that space is something else. So for me, that helps me conceptualize this abstract idea of the window of tolerance. And the way it's explained is basically when you are in your window of tolerance, you can think about it as you can tolerate the way you feel. It means that you are able to feel your feelings, even though they may be very intense, and you can still think and you're not overwhelmed. So what happens when we are in a traumatic situation is that our capacity to cope with the emotions we feel is completely overwhelmed. Therefore, we're out of our window of tolerance. That is what really creates the trauma response that we have. And you could look at it as being adaptive, as you know, many of us are familiar with the idea that trauma responses are helpful. It's how our body and brain responds to threats. So that's why if you were walking through the jungle and a tiger suddenly crossed your path, you would either maybe throw something at the tiger, which would be fight, or you might run away, which is flight. Or if you were so close that there was no way you could get away from the tiger and you knew the tiger could kill you in five seconds, you might freeze. You might even collapse as if you were dead. Those are all adaptive responses in a traumatic experience. And just to make it obvious, seeing a tiger in itself is not traumatic, but tigers are carnivorous predators. 
that are huge, powerful, strong. And if you encounter a tiger in the jungle, you are likely to become prey. So therefore, it's traumatic to be in the jungle and come up on a tiger. And your body and brain automatically respond without you thinking with either a fight, flight, or freeze reaction. So the way it works in your brain is your primitive threat response system in your brain gets activated and takes action without you needing to make a decision. Hmm, should I fight? Should I run? Or should I play dead? You don't think of that. You do it automatically. You might see the tiger, run away as fast as you've ever run in your whole entire life. You might even climb up a tree and then you're sitting there in the top of the tree and you're like, did I just see a tiger? That's how long it takes your thinking brain to catch up when your primitive brain has this automatic threat response reaction. There's no time for thinking. You just have to act. And that is how our trauma responses are adaptive. So going back to the window of tolerance, the window of tolerance is about our response to a threat. When we go out of our window of tolerance, we either go to hyper arousal, which is the fight or flight, you know, where adrenaline shoots through us and we just, you know, become activated and we're either yelling or we're hitting or kicking or we're running. That's what your body wants to do. And during when you're in hyper arousal, what that looks like in our everyday lives, responding to emotional threats and not just physical ones like a tiger. That looks like being really anxious all the time, hyper alert, always looking around behind you, your senses are heightened. You may be angry, physically aggressive, or it could also be that you are turning inward with anger. So you could be doing something to harm yourself. You could be verbally attacking yourself inside your head like inner critic saying, you're so stupid. You're so stupid. What were you thinking? You're an idiot. You'll never figure this out. Things like that. All of those can be examples of hyper arousal. Now, the other side of being out of your window of tolerance is hypo arousal. And when you're in hypo arousal, it may be difficult to think. You may feel foggy, sleepy. So that's more like when you're in the jungle, the playing dead. Basically, your your brain starts to shut down and it's doing that for protection. You could faint. You could fall asleep. You could be yawning. You could just feel very lethargic, no energy, disconnected. It could look like dissociation, there but not there. Catatonia falls into this if someone's in a catatonic state. So... I've been thinking about the window of tolerance in terms of white people's inability to tolerate conversations about racism in which it's suggested that they are part of the problem. Really, I should say we are part of the problem. Now, just as a, I guess you could say like an overlay of the window of tolerance conversation, I also want to bring up the topic of polyvagal theory because Stephen Porges has identified how the vagus nerve helps to either calm or activate our nervous system. And that is what polyvagal theory is about. It's like the window of tolerance, but different. And you heard Deb Dana talk about this on my podcast a couple of years ago. Deb Dana has done a lot of work with Dr. Porges and she has written Recently, she has a new book, and um, I believe her first book was called Polyvagal Theory and Therapy. She's done a beautiful job of translating his very complex work into language that the average person, including therapists, can understand and explain to clients. 
and clients can understand, even if they have no background in mental health. So the aspect of polyvagal theory that I want to focus on is the idea that Deb Dana developed that's similar to the window of tolerance, but instead of the idea of that space and inside of the space, you can think and feel and tolerate your emotions and outside of the space, you're either in hyperarousal or hypoarousal. With Deb Dana's um, polyvagal ladder, it looks like a ladder, you know, with like a line on one side on the left and a line going up on the right, vertical lines, and then horizontal lines in the middle that are like the rungs of the ladder. And in Deb Dana's model of this, um, at the bottom of the ladder, which would be equivalent to on the window of tolerance, hypoarousal is the dorsal vagal state. And I don't think it's that important to remember the name of it, honestly. But the dorsal vagal state is the state of hypoarousal. It's when you're immobilized, collapsed, all the things I described before. Going up from the bottom of the ladder to the middle of the ladder, the sympathetic state is more action-oriented. So that dorsal vagal state is immobilized. You know, you're shut down. You're not really able to take action. It's very protective by keeping you still. In the middle is that sympathetic state, which is mobilized. It's more action-oriented, like I said. That's where fight or flight is. So both of those are threat responses. And then moving up to the top of the ladder is the ventral vagal state. And that's the desired state where we can be in relationship and feel safe. And that's akin to the open space in the window of tolerance, Um Safe and social is what they say about the ventral vagal state. And the reason why the latter is helpful is because you move from shutdown, you slide up into fight or flight before you can get to safe and social. You can't go from shutdown to safe and social. You have to go through fight or flight. And I think that's really valuable to understanding the way that so many of us white people are reacting when we hear someone tell us that we are part of the problem. So just to illustrate what I'm talking about here, I want to talk about some of the things that Robin D'Angelo mentions in White Fragility. But I read a powerful article in Psychotherapy Networker magazine. Well, it's on their website. It's written by Lisa Savage and Kim Knight, and it's called White Therapists. Here's what your black colleagues want you to know. 20 therapists of color on race-based trauma. I'm so grateful for this article. It's really, it's just powerful. And I can't help but recognize that I I don't have the same experience as the people who contributed to this article. And that's that's part of what I need to be examining. That's part of my privilege. Um, Lisa Savage and Kim Knight created a Facebook group in 2016 called Clinicians of Color LLC that has over 12,000 members. It's about being a therapist of color in private practice. And there are over 12,000 members. And some of their members contributed to this article sharing their experiences as Black clinicians who are living through this time right now and really wishing that their white therapist clinician colleagues could understand. So here's one that was from Tiffany C. Brown, PsyD in Chicago, Illinois. I'm going to link to this article in the show notes. Tiffany Brown Dr. Tiffany Brown said, stop asking the black community to help you with your guilt and pain when our community is suffering. We are trying to hold our community together with the last strength we have in our bodies. 
Our collective mental health is fragile, rooted in our DNA. Understand that. And Shamira Howard Blackburn, I hope I pronounced her first name right, LCSW in Baton Rouge, Louisiana said, I know many people love to throw around the words ally and cultural competence, but I hope they can understand that trust in a therapist isn't granted because that therapist attended a three-hour workshop on cultural competence led by someone who isn't a person of color. That doesn't make them an ally. We need therapists who are willing to do deep anti-racism work, who present with cultural humility. This way, we can choose our allies. Allies isn't self-appointed. They're chosen. Let's just pause for a moment so I can give you a little bit more information about why I love therapy notes. I switched to therapy notes few years ago, I'd say it's about three years now, I believe. And I have never regretted it. I was very happy with the EHR I used before, but Therapy Notes is more intuitive. I love the interface. The customer service is fantastic. And I love how I can get my notes done quickly because I can customize the template that I use for my notes and there are opportunities to put check marks rather than having to write out the intervention used. So I have cut my time spent writing notes way down, which is wonderful because I like to focus on seeing clients. I know documentation is an important part of our work, but it can also be time consuming. And that is why I love using therapy notes. If you are considering switching EHRs or you're looking for one to use in your practice, give Therapy Notes a try. Get two free months of Therapy Notes, including their beta version of their new integrated telehealth option. You can get two free months by using the code TherapyChat. Samantha Goborn, L-I-C-S-W in D.C., said, we cannot accept people saying, get over it. It already happened. Move on. I think this is a major problem, the lack of acknowledgement that we as a race have experienced trauma. We have to say it out loud, acknowledge it, and understand how this crime against humanity manifests. Only then can we truly address it, see it for what it is. Nina Keeler, LMFT, who's in West Bloomfield Township, Michigan. Yeah, that's Michigan said, I think recognizing that clients of color may never feel completely regulated is important. It's important to honor that there's always a sense of hyperarousal due to systemic and institutionalized racism. Helping clients acknowledge and manage this is important to decreasing chronic stress and the physical and mental damage it can cause. Chantel Bratcher-Coleman, LCPMHCAADC in Newark, Delaware said, the white majority needs to understand that after being constantly referred to as angry, intimidating, and savage by others, it's very difficult for Black people not to be cautious, mistrusting, and frustrated. We know that no matter how much we've contributed to making this country great, we will never get the credit or fair treatment we deserve. What we need now more than ever is true allies. Tiana Shelton, LCSW, in Troy, Illinois, said, I believe it's important for our white counterparts to know that people of color are hurting. The unfortunate and tragic death of George Floyd and countless other black men and women at the hands of people in positions of authority brings up generational trauma for people of color. Our white colleagues need to understand this, search their hearts, and do the work necessary to be aware of their prejudices and biases 
to be a catalyst for change. No longer is it enough to be sensitive to our plight. Now more than ever, it's imperative to do something to take political action to end racial injustices and disparities. Then and only then can this nation work on collective healing and truly uphold its name as the United States of America. There are many more quotes in that article, but I wanted to read you a few that I thought might get many of you to think differently, if you're white, about how things are and what it's like for people who aren't white. It's definitely doing that for me. And I know I'll be a better person for doing this reflection. And as as Rachel Cargill said in her recent public address on revolution, which was May 30th, 2020, and it's on YouTube, I will link to it. This responsibility to address white supremacy doesn't end when white people feel better about what they did. It doesn't end until all of the ways that white supremacy and oppression have impacted black people in America have been addressed. And I believe we need to do more than address the harm that's been done, but repair the harm that's been done through whatever truth and reconciliation process and reparations need to happen. I'm not educated enough about it to suggest what that should look like, but it must happen. We've never apologized for slavery and we must, but slavery was slavery. The continued oppression and discrimination that have, that didn't stop when the Emancipation Proclamation was put into place have continued. And we, we owe it to Black people in America to make up for that, atone for that. So as I've been reading the book White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, I've been reflecting more on my own reactions. I'm 100% in support of the protests and against police brutality and white supremacy and oppression, discrimination in all forms. But I have some of the same defense mechanisms that I'm reacting to when I think about myself as a racist. I don't like thinking about that. I don't want to think of myself that way. It's an identity that I have not wanted to accept, but I now realize that it's true. So I took a couple quotes out of the book to describe much better than I'm able to put into words what I found really helpful in in this first chapter. Dr. Robin D'Angelo writes, when I talk to white people about racism, their responses are so predictable I sometimes feel as though we are all reciting lines from a shared script. And on some level, we are because we are actors in a shared culture. She explains that one of the defenses that white people, when confronted with their own internalized racism, have is they argue individualism. And that is really such an inherently American cultural value. Individualism, and I'm quoting here, claims that there are no intrinsic barriers to individual success and that failure is not a consequence of social structures, but comes from individual character. According to the ideology of individualism, race is irrelevant. So some examples are people saying things like, this is America. Everyone has equal opportunity here. Anyone can make it. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. My family came here as immigrants in the late 1800s. They never owned slaves. So it's that idea that I'm not like other white people. I'm I'm good, even if other white people may be racist. I'm not. I'm different. 
And uh, that whole thing about my family came here as immigrants. There's no denying that immigrants struggle when they come to this country. And yet there's a difference between immigrants who blend in more easily with white culture due to lighter skin and people who come here, people who are black. So I thought based on the oral family history that I had learned that my family entered America around the end of the 1800s, like 1890. That was kind of a date that I made up in my mind as when it was. I mean, it was based on some, you know, guessing from Ireland. So Irish immigrants came here late 1800s. Hey, you know, we're not part of racism. We we never had enslaved people as property, but I was actually very wrong about that. And I I did some research on Ancestry.com and found out that it's true that there was that ancestor who came from Ireland, but it wasn't in the late 1800s. It was earlier in the 1800s. And I thought it was a husband and wife who came over together, but apparently it was a woman who came over and who married a plantation owner. So actually they did own slaves. That's in my family history and I didn't even know it. So here I thought, even though I thought all white people have a role in ending racism, I didn't know that my own family actually benefited from slavery. And I feel horribly heartbroken about that. But even if that were not true, as a white person, I benefit from white supremacy. Things are easier for me than they are for someone just like me who's black because of our skin color and for no other reason. And that's wrong. So another quote from the book, White Fragility, is the racial status quo is comfortable for white people and we will not move forward in race relations if we remain comfortable. The key to moving forward is what we do with our discomfort. She asks us to reflect on this question. How can my unease help reveal the unexamined assumptions I've been making? And it's such a privilege to even have these assumptions. Something I keep thinking about is my elementary school. From third grade through sixth grade, I went to an elementary school that was in a very diverse neighborhood. Well, diversity as I knew it then, which was black kids and white kids. It was called J.E.B. Stewart Elementary School, and it was shortened. The J.E.B. was shortened to Jeb, Jeb Stewart Elementary. That's where I went. And I didn't know that Jeb Stewart was a Confederate general. So the school was named after a Confederate general. And this school was at least 50 percent black kids. It might have been more. I mean, there really weren't that many white kids in the school. So what does it do to a child, a black child, who goes to an elementary school that's named after a Confederate general? I didn't even know that was what he was until a couple years ago. But, you know, and I think it's kind of interesting that they didn't teach us that at the very school that we went to. But it's gross. It's disgusting to do that. It's not harmless. There's a There are elementary schools all over the country that are named after and other levels of schools that are named after Civil War figures. That needs to be changed. And those are the overt examples. Again, it's easier to point to those overt examples, but the way that we white people benefit from being white and white supremacy and how we don't see how it impacts black people is a huge part of the problem. That's what we need to be unearthing so that we can really understand and have true empathy. And this is where the concept of the window of tolerance and the polyvagal ladder come into it. 
Back to the book White Fragility, Robin D'Angelo writes, We need to build our capacity to sustain the discomfort of not knowing, the discomfort of being racially unmoored, the discomfort of racial humility. So what tends to happen to us white people when someone suggests that we are part of the problem is we feel overwhelmed with shame. So we shut down. That's hypoarousal. We don't say anything. That's shut down. Or we become anxious and afraid, hyperarousal. Or we defiantly claim that that's untrue, become angry at the person who suggested it. So the fight or flight response kicks in, hyperarousal. We are out of our window of tolerance when somebody tells us that we are part of the problem and we react as if there is a threat. So the reason why the window of tolerance is a kind of a fundamental concept in trauma therapy is because when you meet with someone, if you're a therapist working with someone doing trauma work, you want to know how wide is their window of tolerance? How wide of a range of emotions can they tolerate? And whatever it is, however wide or narrow it may be, you want to help it expand. And that's what this type of work is about for white people. But we don't have all day. We got to work on it fast. It's been way too long. It's been 400 years and it has to change fast. We don't have the luxury of waiting around till we figure it out 10 years from now. We need to do it now. Black people are asking us to do it now and we need to listen. What Robin D'Angelo talks about is that we don't have the stamina to stay within our window of tolerance during these discussions. She hasn't used window of tolerance, but that's what she's talking about. We white people are so fragile. We can't handle it. And we need to expand our ability to tolerate our own discomfort when this subject comes up. So just like I would encourage someone to do in a therapy session when they are triggered out of their window of tolerance, we can do the same thing in this work. It's like, um, I'm going to repeat the question that she asked, how can my unease help reveal the unexamined assumptions I've been making? What's coming up for me? What's coming up for me when this person tells me that I'm part of the problem? I mean, when someone says I'm racist, I feel like, no, I want you to know that I'm a good person. I do things to help people. I don't, I'm vehemently opposed to racism. I think it's horrible. I don't want that identity and I feel threatened by that identity. It threatens the way I see myself as a good person. I want to see myself as a good person, but if I'm not willing to really see myself and how I benefit from the structures that support white supremacy, then I'm not being the person I really want to be. So again, referencing what Rachel Cargill said in her public address that I mentioned earlier, she said, this is not about self-improvement work for white people. This is to, and now I'm using my own words, this is to atone for the harm we have done as a people, to change it, to end this oppression and discrimination and police brutality, economic inequality, de facto segregation, and all of the other ways that white supremacy is upheld in the United States. So the last thing I want to share, and again, I will link to this article as well. We can all do something and there's a lot of different things we can do, but there's an article called Mapping Our Social Change Roles in Times of Crisis. It's kind of interesting because it's related to the coronavirus, but of course it should apply to anything. And this is by Deepa Iyer. So the goal is equity, inclusion, liberation, justice, 
solidarity, resiliency, and interdependency. And the roles that we can take are storytellers, guides, weavers, experimenters, frontline responders, visionaries, builders, caregivers, disruptors, and healers. All of those roles are needed and we all can be acting out many of those roles in different ways, but everyone's part is needed to make this change. Now, I recently learned about this, um, which I'm going to share to you with you, and it is, I found it helpful. It's from Eddie Moore Jr. And his website is called America and More, M-O-O-R-E, Diversity Education Research and Consulting. And he has a 21-day racial equity habit building challenge. That's a copyrighted phrase. So if you are a white person, you're feeling overwhelmed, you're in your hypo arousal, take care of what you need to do to get back to being grounded. And then go check out this 21-day racial equity habit building challenge that has It directs us to, for 21 days, do one action to further your understanding of power, privilege, supremacy, oppression, and equity. And it has suggestions for readings, podcasts, videos, observations, and more. Of course, there's been a lot of amazing work that's been done since 2014, but there's a tracking chart to help you keep track of it and stay on course. And it could be done individually with friends and family or in an organization. And there's a Facebook page that you can use to get ideas and share your experience. So I'm going to give you a link to that as well. There are many suggestions of great books, things to listen to, things to watch of varying lengths. Some are five minutes, two minutes. Others are 12 minutes, 10 minutes, and then longer, like more than one hour. There's a test to help you identify really how aware you are and just a lot of suggestions. So I hope that you'll find this useful. I apologize again for my mistake last week and to anyone who was harmed by that. I'm truly sorry. That's about all I have to say for today. Next week, I'm planning on talking about vicarious trauma. So thank you for listening and take care. Today's episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes. There are many ways to keep your practice organized, but Therapy Notes is the best. Their easy-to-use, secure platform lets you not only do your billing, scheduling, and progress notes, but also create a client portal to share documents and request signatures. Plus, they offer amazing unlimited phone support, so when you have a question, you can get help fast. To get started with the practice management software trusted by over 60,000 professionals, go to therapynotes.com and start a free trial today. If you enter promo code THERAPYCHAT, they will give you two months to try it out for free. Thanks also to DoxyMe for sponsoring this episode. DoxyMe is an easy-to-use, HIPAA-compliant telehealth platform that is available in free and paid versions. Get $50 off a paid account by going to doxy.me and putting in the code THERAPYCHAT. A couple weeks ago, my group practice needed to close our office to in-person sessions and make a quick pivot to telehealth due to the coronavirus. I was able to set up free HIPAA-compliant DoxyMe accounts for my staff and interns. This allowed us to quickly and easily transition to telehealth during a stressful situation. I already had my own paid account that I'd been using as needed. DoxyMe has been easy for staff and clients to use so we can focus on the therapy sessions. Get $50 off a paid account by going to doxy.me and putting in the code therapychat. 
That's D-O-X-Y dot M-E. And use the code TherapyChat for $50 off. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.